Amen. Lord, that is so true. There's nothing that compares, nothing this world has to offer. There's nothing that man can give us or that we can attain or that we can strive for in this world that compares to the relationship that we can have with you, the promise that we have, the promise of eternal life, the down payment on heaven that you've given us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we just thank you and praise you that we are your sons and daughters. We've been adopted into your family. And, Lord, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would inhabit this time in your word. That, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. I pray that our hearts would be soft and receptive. And, Father God, as we dig into your word, Lord, I just pray that it would minister to each person who's here. Lord, that we would take what we learn and apply it to our lives. May we be more and more conformed to your image. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. God bless you guys. It's good to see you. It's good to be back on a Wednesday night. It's been three weeks since I taught on a Wednesday and it's really good to be home. Those of you I didn't see on Sunday, just briefly, the India trip was phenomenal. God did great and awesome things. He did exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think and and on top of that, my stomach still doesn't hurt. So praise the Lord. Amen? So God is good. A little curry, I guess, took care of the problem, at least for a while. But uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2. And I'm, I am going to take, since it's been three weeks, I want to take a few minutes and just, again, kind of review Numbers real quickly, give us a context of where we are, and then we're going to take a look at Numbers chapter 2. Um, I also wanted to say that... Uh, Tonight I'm going to have a little object lesson if I can figure out how to make it work back here. Um, I'm not real good at that kind of stuff, but we'll see how it works. So the book of Numbers, let's talk about that for a moment. We talked about how there are five books in the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, Pentateuch, five books of the law. Who were they written by? Who wrote the law? Moses. And the first book of the law was Genesis. And in Genesis we saw creation. We saw man falling into sin. We saw man choosing to rebel against God and falling into the depravity of sin. But then we saw them being delivered into bondage as we get into Exodus. And in their bondage, they spent 400 years in bondage in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is a typology of the world. And we saw them in bondage to sin and stuck in sin. But then we see how the Lord delivered them through the miracles that He performed. And finally, through Passover, we saw that they were delivered out of the bondage of sin in Exodus, the bondage that they were into mankind. Again, Passover, firstborn spotless lamb, blood on both sides of the doorpost, the top and at the feet, a picture of the cross. And through the shed blood of the cross, they were able to exit out of bondage, just like you and I are delivered of the bondage of sin, from the bondage of sin, only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Then we got to Leviticus, that we spent about six months taking a look at that book. Amazingly enough, because it was only one month long in the Bible that they spent uh, in Leviticus, and we took six months to study it, but Leviticus, the key word to Leviticus, who remembers? What's the key word to Leviticus? Holiness. It's a book on holiness, and it was about being sanctified or set apart unto the Lord, and how to have access to God through sacrifices and fellowship with God through obedience. And so we saw clearly how every one of the sacrifices clearly pointed to Jesus Christ. That every sacrifice that was made was a picture of our Savior. And then we come to the book of Numbers. And Numbers, I think that, again, while the Word of God is divinely inspired, every single bit of it, uh, the, the names of the books are not necessarily divinely inspired. They're named, 
and given names. And the book of Numbers is called Numbers because it numbers the people twice in the book. But it's also been called In the Wilderness, and I think that's a much better name. And the Jews today call it the Book of Murmurings because you see the, the Jews in Israel, as they wander in the wilderness, do nothing but murmur and complain. And so we're going to see in, in Numbers that they are wandering through the wilderness, and we're going to see the, the painful consequences of unbelief and the irresponsible decisions they make in choosing again to rebel against God, to go contrary to what He has called them to do, to lose faith. And so we're going to see as we continue through Numbers, just following the children of Israel during that time in the wilderness. Now we know that if you walk the distance from where they were delivered to where the land of promise was, you can make that walk in 11 days. But that 11 days became a 40-year trek. And it became a 40-year trek because they were murmuring against God, they were walking in disobedience, and it was a consequence of their sin. You and I are going to have wilderness times in our walk with the Lord. But we don't have to stay there. Amen? We're going to have times when we walk through dryness. We're going to have times when we walk through difficulty. But then it's up to us to cry out to the Lord. That by the power of His Holy Spirit, He might pour out His Spirit upon us and quench that, that thirst and, and help us to thirst and hunger for Him yet again. And so we're going to see as we go through Numbers that disbelief. We're going to see that spies are sent into the land and the twelve come back. And of the twelve that come back to spy out the land, ten come back and say there's giants in the land. There's no way we can defeat them. Now remember who they're talking to. They're talking to the, the very people that had seen the Red Sea parted. The very people that had seen all the plagues that came upon Egypt. And yet here they are with this, this report that there are giants in the land and they say, oh, we, do, we can't do it. We can't defeat them. Although Joshua and Caleb came back and said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And you know what? It's, it's more often than not that those who doubt will outnumber those who have faith. Those who doubt God will always outnumber those who trust God. And you know what? We need to, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking, wanting to show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. And God's looking for those who are faithful. And you know what? We may be few, but you plus God is a majority. And these guys, some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. They said, oh man, the land of promise. You know, we can't go in. There's giants in the land. Let's go back to Egypt. At least there we had leeks and onions. Let's go back into bondage. Let's run back to the world. And too often we make that same mistake as Christians. We can make the mistake of desiring maybe to run back to the world, to our old way of life, when things get difficult in our Christian walk. So we see here that Numbers really is a type or a picture of that. And then we're going to see that Christ is all over the book of Numbers. Surprise, surprise. Okay? Jesus Christ is in every book of the Bible and virtually every single chapter. We're going to see that tonight as we look at chapter 2 of Numbers. That the first time you read it, you wouldn't see it necessarily, but we're going to clearly see that Jesus is all over it. But as we go through, we're going to see that He's the rock that quenches the thirst of the multitudes. It says in 1 Corinthians that they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. The manna is going to fall from the sky to feed them while they're in the wilderness. And the bread of life, once again, is Jesus Christ. We're going to see in Numbers 21 that there's a bronze serpent that's held up on a stake. A picture of the cross. In John 3.14 it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. A serpent's a picture of sin. And we know that Jesus, He who knew no sin, became sin for us. And so this is what we're going to see in Numbers. It's this time in the wilderness. And as they're traveling through the wilderness, we're going to see 
disobedience. And we're going to see them be outside of God's will. And we're going to see that that entire generation that was freed from bondage, except for two men, are going to die in the same wilderness because of unbelief, because of their unwillingness to follow God with their whole heart and walk in obedience to Him. So we come now to Numbers chapter 2. And I want to say this about this chapter. This chapter could be called, and I, I defined it as God's divine order. Because in this chapter, we're going to see that God truly is in control of every single detail, of every single thing that happens in life. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is faithful. And we're going to read a chapter that maybe the first time you read it, you're going to think, okay, that was great. What's in chapter 3? Right? Too often we can read God's Word and, and we'll look at it and, and they seem a little dry at first. Sometimes they even seem irrelevant or even redundant. Like, okay, what's the point? And, you know, we may have no problem when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We go, oh, I I understand that. I can apply that to my life. I can go out and love others. Okay, I get it. I I understand for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But Numbers chapter 2 is telling the children of Israel how to camp. It tells them in what direction to set up their camp and how to march through the wilderness. And as you're reading it, it, you know, you might say, well, how in the world is this going to apply to my life? I mean, these are camping instructions. When I was, the first time you read it, you might, I remember uh, not too long ago, buying a propane barbecue. And, you know, I thought, okay, and I'll put this bad boy together. And then I opened it up and it had like 9,000 pieces. That's an exaggeration, but not by much, okay? I mean, there were 18 bags of screws and all these bolts and all this stuff. And then I'd pull out the instruction manual you know, and it's, it's this thing that folds up all, you know, and I open this thing up and I look at it and I start reading this thing. And I thought, you know, this is real exciting reading right about now. You know, I'm reading this thing and I'm like, okay, this is just great. This is, well, I, I should, I should, you know, read this over again. This is wonderful. But it was like reading an instruction manual. And sometimes when you look at chapters in the Bible, like the chapter tonight, it might look like reading the instructions on how to put together your propane barbecue. Or how to put in a ceiling fan. Or how to put that, that toy together on Christmas morning. I mean, because really that's what it is. It's an instruction manual from God to the children of Israel on how they're supposed to camp. Now you're saying, well, this was 1,500 years B.C. It's 2,000 years after. It's 3,500 years ago. These are camping instructions for Israel in the wilderness. What's this got to do with my life? How many of you have ever read a chapter in the Bible and thought that before? Okay, both of my hands are up. You read it and go... Okay, so what? You ever done that? You read a chapter? Okay, great. All right, so they're going to put up the, all right, the flag and the thing. Okay, all right, great, all right, all right, right, great. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, you know. And you know what? I read something one time that said that when you find a piece of Scripture that in your heart seems dry, that you need to moisten it with sweat and the Holy Spirit. And I like that. How do you moisten it with sweat? You dig deep into God's Word. I actually get fired up when I read a chapter, and the first time I read it, it makes no sense to me. I read it, and I think, ooh, there's got to be something really good in here, okay? But it's going to take some time. I'm going to have to, you know, pull that thing out and really dig through it layer by layer. You know, do an inductive Bible study like I just got done teaching 550 guys in India how to do. And I'm going to have to be diligent and and desperate for the Lord and the Holy Spirit's going to have to illuminate truth to me. And again, when we read through Numbers chapter 2, it will seem somewhat irrelevant maybe. 
But like an archaeologist unearthing a rare find, so too we can discover true riches in the text by digging in layer by layer. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to dig into Numbers chapter 2. We're going to discover what God wants to teach us. His reason for giving these very specific and painstaking instructions to the children of Israel some 3,500 years ago. He's going to tell them, this is how I want you to go through the wilderness. You are to obey my instructions very specifically and very completely. And I, I pray that you will be as excited as I was after I studied this. Again, read the first time seems irrelevant. But as you go through, God opens our heart and opens our eyes to just how awesome His Word is and how everything He says and everything He does, He's always in control. He's going to reveal to us in chapter 2 both prophetic truth of things that were to come and some that are yet to come. 3,500 years ago, by telling them how to camp, we're going to see prophetic truth. Then we're also going to see spiritual application for every one of us in this room by looking at camping instructions for the children of Israel. I love the Bible. It just flat out rocks. You can read the instruction manual on how to camp and have it apply to your life and transform your life and you can see Jesus all over it and you can see prophecy in camping instructions. The Bible is just a great, great, awesome, awesome book. The living, breathing Word of God. So let's begin in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 2 and look at God's divine order and watch how God again, this is an awesome picture and we're going to see Jesus all over this as well as having things to encourage us in our own walk with God. So look at verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Now, in chapter 1, they numbered the people. Those of you who were here three weeks ago before I went to India, we looked at them numbering the people. And we talked about how God had them number the people for a reason. David got in trouble for numbering the people. But David numbered them out of pride. He wanted to say, how great is my army? But here God wanted to number the people because every person counted. You know, the good shepherd left the ninety and nine to go after the one. You can't leave the ninety and nine to go after the one unless you know how many sheep you have. You will, you'll never know that one is missing unless you know every one of your sheep intimately. Hey, that's my heart as your pastor. I want to know you guys intimately. I try my heart, I'm not always successful, but I try to pray for each of you by name a couple of times a week. I carry this, this that's a good reason to get your picture in here, but I carry this thing around and I just go through here and I pray for everybody. Because you know what, as I pray for you, God gives me a greater passion and a greater love for you and a greater burden for your family. And those of you I know specific prayer for, I pray those specific prayers and those who don't, I just pray for you anyway. And that's the heart of a shepherd, hopefully is that you just have a supernatural love for your sheep. And so they numbered the people in chapter 1 because of the love for the people, because of the desire to minister to every single one of them. And God wanted to clearly let them understand how many people were there. So the people have been numbered, but now they're going to be going through the wilderness, and now they're going to be ordered in how to camp. And we see there in verse 2 that it says, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Now, the word standard there doesn't mean by his own moral aptitude or moral decision-making. The standard was a flag or a banner. So they would hold up flags or banner based upon the tribe that they belonged to. And every tribe had a banner that was in 12 different colors. The colors matched. 
the, the gemstones that were in the breastplate of the great high priest. Those of you who are here, when we went through the high priest, uh, remember in Exodus how each of the gemstones was a different color, and it was close to the heart of the high priest. Talked about how, how we are near and dear to the heart of our Savior, and how we are precious to Him. And each one of these tribes had a banner. And these banners had emblems upon them. And it says here in verse 2 that everyone shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. So they're going to be going through the wilderness. The tabernacle is the central focal point. And based upon the tabernacle, they're all going to camp based on God's instructions around the tabernacle. So hopefully I can figure out how to do this. Probably going to need help because I'm worthless and weak. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. How do you turn this thing on? Oh, how about that? All by myself, that's pretty good. All right. So the central focus point of them wandering in the wilderness is the tabernacle. Now remember the tabernacle, the place where the Shekinah glory of Almighty God dwelt. The Levites were set aside by God to minister in the tabernacle. Because they ministered in the tabernacle, they were allowed to camp and sleep closest to the tabernacle. We talked about the fact that those who minister for the Lord are the ones who are closest to the Lord. It's amazing how if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. As we serve God, we encamp closest to Him. The Levites were able to encamp closest to the Lord. The tabernacle is the place, those you've been coming, and dwelled all the, the furnishings, all of which pointed to Christ. The Holy of Holies is there. The Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt upon the tabernacle. So, they are to, the tabernacle is a central focal point as they're wandering through the wilderness. And now He's going to tell them how to camp as they wander through the wilderness. So let's begin in verse 3. We're going to take a look at the first grouping. On the east side, toward the rising of the suns, those of the standard of the forces of Judah shall camp according to their armies. And Nashon, the son of Amenadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be of the tribe of Issachar. And Nathaniel the son of Zuar shall be the leader of the children of Issachar. And his army was numbered at 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun. And Eliab the son of Halon shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun. And his army was numbered at 57,400. All who were numbered according to the armies of the forces with Judah. 186,400. These shall break camp first. So the first camp that we see even greater instruction as we go through the text. They were to literally be totally parallel, perpendicular to the tabernacle. They were not to camp outside of its width, and they were to go dead east. And we see that there's 186,000... I lost it. 186,400 people, all right? So in that tribe is Judah. In that tribe, along with Judah, we saw also that there is uh, Issachar, and along with Issachar is Zebulun. Now it's interesting that all three of those um, tribes or men... Now what are the twelve tribes? Where do they come from? The twelve what? Twelve what? Twelve sons of Jacob. Okay? Actually Joseph breaks into two and Levi becomes not a tribe anymore. We'll talk about that in a minute. But all three of these sons were sons of Leah. Okay? The first wife of Jacob, they're... They're younger sons of Leah, and so they all have that in common. But the leader of this tribe was Judah. 
Now it's important to note that they were to lead the way. Not only because we're going to see in a minute that they're the greatest in number, but also who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ. And so they were to lead the way because through them would come the promised Messiah. Now interestingly enough that they had a banner. And on that banner, the tribe of Judah that flew high above them as they were to march through the wilderness, on that banner was a lion. Because that was the emblem of Judah. So they were marching with a lion on their emblem. They were marching first. Again, the lion of the tribe of Judah would be Jesus Christ. It's pointing to Him. They're marching through the wilderness. They lead the way. So if this is set up right, and I don't mess up, So, due east, due east of the tabernacle, again, camped straight perpendicularly from there, you see the tribe of Judah, 186,400, along with them are Issachar and Zebulun, all right? They have a banner, it's a green banner, and on that banner is a lion. We're going to talk about the significance of all of this as we continue on through. Verses 10 through 16, let's look at the south side. On the south side shall be the standard of the forces of Reuben, according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Eleazar, the son of Shadar. And his army is numbered at 46,500. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. And the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shemuel, the son of Zerubbabel, or Zerashaddai. Never mind. Okay. God bless you, brother. And his army was numbered at 59,300. Then comes the tribe of Gad, the leader of the children of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Reuel. And his army was numbered at 45,650. And all who numbered according to the armies of the forces with Reuben, 151,450, they shall be second to break camp. So the first people that go out of camp are, we see that Judah leads the way. And those with Judah follow behind him. And they're carrying the banner of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, a picture of Jesus Christ. And they go out first, and they're the largest group. But those that were to break camp right behind them was to be Reuben and Simeon and Gad. Now, they went out and they had a, a red flag. And on the center of that red flag was the picture or uh, the face of a man. So Judah goes out with a lion on their banner, and right behind them, but yet going to be camping in yet a different direction, comes the, the tribe of Reuben, and on that tribe, when that red flag that they hold up is the face of a man. So going to the south, again, hopefully this works right, we have the tribe of Reuben. So you've got Judah to the south, you've got Reuben, excuse me, Reuben to the south, and Judah to the east, and as they, were marching, as they would march through the wilderness, Judah would go first, then Reuben. And as they would camp, this is how they would camp out. So every time they set up camp, they had to do it exactly according to God's divine order. And at the time, it may have even seemed ridiculous to them. It may have even seemed, why do we have to be so specific in the way that we do things? Well, by the time we get done with the chapter, you and I will understand whether or not they ever fully understood or not, we don't know. And you know what? God's going to do the same thing with us sometimes, you guys. God will ask us to obey Him when it doesn't make sense. Amen? Sometimes God's going to say, go and you go, but wait a minute, Lord. But I can't do that, Lord. Well, have you seen my checkbook? You know about my health? I mean, look at the problem. I, I can't possibly do that. 
But the Lord says, just obey me. I'll take care of the details. And he's telling them to obey his divine order. And we're going to see, again, the significance behind it as we continue to move on. Verse 17. So we've looked at Judah being the leader in in the first group. And then Reuben in the second group. Let's look at the third group. Beginning before that, verse 17. Speaking of the Levites. And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps. As they camp, they shall move out everyone in the place by their standards. So when they're camping, this is the, direct, the way they camped. But when they moved out, Judah went first, and then Reuben, and then behind them came the Levites with the tabernacle. So what was journeying in the very center as they went through the wilderness? The tabernacle. And what dwelt or who dwelt in the tabernacle? Almighty God, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. So as they were going through the wilderness, who was in their midst? God was. Amen? Who was it that was right in the center of them? Judah went first, then Reuben, then the Levites. But every time they stopped, they would camp out in this exact manner. Okay? So, verse 18. Take a look at the next group. On the west side shall be the standard of the forces with Ephraim, according to the armies. And the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishamah, the son of Amahud. And his army was numbered at 40,500. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh, the leader of the children of Manasseh, Shogamaliel, the son of Pedazur. Now listen, Manasseh and Ephraim are the sons of who? Joseph. Okay? Joseph actually ends up having two of the twelve tribes. Levi was one of the tribes. Levi becomes the priestly tribe. So they no longer are counted or numbered. They no longer go out to battle. They're to serve the Lord full time in ministry. So to replace them, God takes Joseph's two sons and breaks them into two tribes. So Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons of Joseph. And they're the first two tribes listed here in this group. And then it says there, Moving on to verse 21. And his army was numbered at 32,200. Then comes the tribe of Benjamin. And the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abadan, the son of Gideonai. And his army was numbered at 35,400. All who were numbered according to the armies of the forces of Ephraim, 108,100, they shall be third to break camp. So the third group that would come and the leader of that third group that would go out is Ephraim. Now, they had a banner as well. Their banner was a golden banner. And on their banner was an ox. So you've got Judah going out first carrying a green banner and on that banner was a lion. Then behind them came Reuben and on his red banner was the face of a man. Then the Levites went out in the center of them, that the glory of God would be in the center of them as they traveled through the wilderness. And then yet behind them comes the tribe of Ephraim with a golden banner carrying an ox. And when they camped at night, they were to camp in the direction due west. And so when they would camp, being again, based on the number of the people in their tribe, the amount of room that they would take, They camp due, due uh, west, and because of the number of people, obviously it would take less room than the tribe of Judah would take. All right? And so they encamp there. Verse 25. The standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies. And the leader of the children of Dan shall be Ahazer, the son 
man, these guys are messing me up. Amishadai. And his army was numbered at 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be of the tribe of Asher. And the leader of the children of Asher shall be Pagiel, the son of Okran. And his army shall be numbered at 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali. And the leader of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Enan. And his army was numbered at 53,400. All who numbered of the forces of Dan, 157,600, they shall break camp last with their standards. Now the two strongest tribes were the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Dan, of these groups. The ones that went out first and the ones that held up the back. The two strongest. And in the midst of them were, this, were the, the lesser tribes. So the tribe of Dan, along with Asher and Naphtali, went out to the north side. And they carried a flag that was red and white. And on that flag was an eagle. And so as they camped in the wilderness, according to God's divine order, we see the last piece being put in place. And as they marched through the wilderness, every time they stopped and set up camp, this is what it looked like. So when they were marching through the wilderness and God the Father looked down on the children of Israel, what did He see? The cross. Isn't it amazing? 1,500 years before Jesus Christ comes to earth. The divine order is given to the children of Israel on how they're supposed to camp. They painstakingly obey God's orders. And as they obey His orders to camp out in the exact way that God had commanded, they're marching through the wilderness in a cross. Because Jesus Christ is the only one that can deliver us from the wilderness. Amen? He's the only one. Because where are they headed? They're in the wilderness and where are they going? Where are they going? The promised land. Now the promised land is a type or a picture of what for us? Heaven. And for them to get from the wilderness, as they're traveling toward the land of promise, they're marching in the formation of a cross. And for us to go from the wilderness of sin, the place where we've been separated from God, to enter into the land of promise, it is only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Man, I love the Bible. The first time you may have, you could have read this and went, okay, a bunch of people in the east and the west and north and south, cool, chapter 3. What has this got to do with my life? I don't know. What does it have to do with our lives? Everything. Amen? Without the cross, we're doomed. And praise God just for the the awesomeness of His Word, the divine order of the Bible, the sovereignty of every single line and every single letter and every single word in the Old Testament pointing clearly to our Savior. So God the Father is looking down and in the midst is the tabernacle and as He looks down, He sees the cross as they're traveling along. And as the Lord looks down, as God looks down, from heaven at you and I, He sees us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're clean. We're righteous. We're holy. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He did for us. I just love when God takes something that the first time we may look at it, and then as we dig deeper into His Word, He clearly shows us something as incredible as this. 
Now it's interesting to me that they're wandering through the wilderness in the formation of a cross, headed to the land of promise, and what are they living in? What are they living in? Tents. Tents are temporary dwellings, right? Now as we wander through this wilderness that we're in, in a sense, as long as we're in the world, right? And we're headed to the land of promise, what are we dwelling in? Tents. Temporary tabernacles. Things that are passing away. Temporary dwelling places. Things that we will not take with us into the land of promise. And do you know that those who did go in from Israel did not take those old ratty tents with them into the land of promise? Awesome, clear picture of Jesus Christ, Him crucified, risen from the dead. A picture of us as we're headed to the land of promise. We're living in temporary dwelling places. But what is it that's at the center of that cross? What's in the center of that cross that allows them to know that they're gods and that they belong to Him? What's there? The tabernacle, right? And in the tabernacle is the Shekinah glory, Almighty God. What is in the center of these temporary dwelling places that lets us know that we belong to God and that we have the promise of eternal life? What is it? The Holy Spirit. Again, a clear picture here. Marching through the wilderness, in the tabernacle, they see the Shekinah glory of God. They know that the promise is to come if they will walk in obedience to the Lord. What a clear picture of you and I. That we have the Holy Spirit. We're living in temporary tents. The Spirit of the living God lives inside of us. And we're headed to the land of promise. Praise the Lord. Amen? God is so good. I just love the Bible. It rocks. Okay? The Holy Spirit is within our hearts. Now, what about these four banners? They're carrying a banner with a lion on it. They got another banner with a man on it. They got another banner with an ox. And then finally, the last banner has an eagle on it. And you know if it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. Amen? Got to be. God doesn't just throw, you know, extra stuff into the Bible. There are no irrelevant details. There are no irrelevant facts. Everything in God's Word is in there for a reason. So let me, you can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to quote to you two scriptures that make it very clear to me two applications for these these four banners. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10. And it says, speaking of the cherubim, angels, it says, as for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on its right side. Each of the four had a face of an ox on its left side. And each of the four had a face of an eagle. Ezekiel speaking about heaven and the angels that are in heaven, and it says on, on again, and, and as they would march, they would go out, Judah would actually go dead east, okay? So if we were to look at it correct, you could actually look at it this way. If I know how to do what I'm doing here. That's not east. There we go. Okay. Now, what does it say here? Each had the face of a man. Each had the face of a lion... On the right side, Judah's the tribe of what? What's their banner? Lion. What side are they on as they march through the wilderness, looking down from the, uh, the, the sky? The right side. Is that by chance in the Bible? Oh, oh what an what amazing coincidence in God's Word. And then it says, And each had the face of an ox on the left side. Ephraim is the one with what? The banner of what? An ox. 
So God's looking down from heaven, the angels in heaven, a picture of the angelic host. So on top of the cross marching through the wilderness on its way to the land of promise, we see a clear picture of the angels in the banners that are being carried. If that's not enough proof, you can go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 7. And it says, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf or an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Revelation, this is heaven. We're seeing 3,500 years ago a picture of heaven as they're going through the wilderness that points to the angelic host. The Bible rocks. Amen? This is good stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm studying, I'm going, this is awesome, right? I just love how God just shows you truth as you dig into His Word. And we see here that it's pointing to the angels. And I believe this tells us that not only was God in their presence, not only were they marching through the wilderness, but they had the angels around about them. The angelic host around about them. And just as angels encamp around us right now. Angels watching over me. Amen? How many of you know that that's true? That's an absolute fact. The Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. But the good news is, it's not just the dark realm that's going on. There's angels too. And we know this is true. I want to read to you from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. And it says there, and, and this is about Elisha, And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And a servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He went out and from his physical eyes, he saw an army surrounding them and he said, We're done. We're toast. We're overwhelmed. How can we compete? We're in big trouble. And the same can happen to you and I if we look at our circumstances from a worldly perspective. You know, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus told the, his disciples, We're going to go over to the other side. Get in the boat. And they got in the boat and they went out and the storm started kicking up. And what did they do? They panicked. Remember that? The Lord was sleeping and they were panicking. And they, start, they went and woke him up and said, Lord, don't you know? Now you know this was a big storm when fishermen are panicking. I've been deep sea fishing and those guys who drive those boats out there, they don't panic over nothing. They never panic. I was not happy. Waves were huge. Small craft advisories, right? These guys are eating peanut butter sandwiches sitting on the deck, right? Everybody's sick. They're not. Can you imagine how big the waves had to be to make a fisherman nervous? Peter, and, and they're out there, fi and these guys are scared to death, and they run to the Lord, and they wake him up and say, we're going to die. Don't you care? And the Lord gets up and says, peace be still. <laughs> waves crash down. Now, why did they panic? Because they were looking at their circumstances instead of looking at the Master. If they had had their eyes on Jesus, he was napping. They'd have said, the Lord is at peace, I should be at peace. And if we look at our circumstances, we're going to be overwhelmed. But if we look at the Lord, we will always be at peace. If we look at things from a spiritual perspective, we will never panic. God, you're in control. The way you divinely ordered the Bible, the way you divinely ordered your, your people as they march through the wilderness is the way you've divinely ordered my life. You're in control. You can use this for your glory. Lord, just let me let you. Let me not get overwhelmed by my circumstances. Well, this man's doing the same thing. He comes out. He sees his army, and he's like, oh, we're toast. 
We're all going to die. What are we going to do? And he runs back in and says, Master, what shall we do? So he answered. This is Elisha answering. So he answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, this response from a physical perspective would be like, Dude, you're smoking something, man. We got a few people in here. That's a huge army out there. What are you talking about? You got to be kidding me. Next verse. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The reality is that we entertain angels unaware, that there are angelic beings that God uses in the world today, that it is a spiritual battle, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? We can look at things from a physical perspective, we can be overwhelmed, and we just have to remember that our God is faithful, that He's in control, and greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? We don't have to get overwhelmed by our finances. We don't have to get overwhelmed by our health or by our job situation or by troubles that we're having at work. Or tr- we can trust God because He's greater than all of it. And we see here as they're marching through the wilderness, not only is the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle, but the, the, the host of heaven is with them as they march through on their way to the promised land, just as the host of heaven is with us as we march through life on the way to the promised land. Amen? Praise the Lord. By the way, if you read the end of this book, we win. Amen? Done. Game over. We win. And so we should have a, a joy and a peace as we go through difficulty. But there's one more thing that I want you to see here about these banners. And I think it's pretty awesome. Now again, this is, I'll just make it, I'll be straight with you. This is a Pastor Dave opinion, okay? But as I was studying, I saw a correlation. Maybe you will. If you don't, it's okay, all right? Just something to think about, all right? Pastor Dave's opinion, all right? When I look at these four banners, I see one more thing. What is it that illuminates the cross? What is it that makes the cross real? The four Gospels. Without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we would not understand the cross the way that we do. Amen? Without the good news of Jesus Christ, without being able to see His life clearly, we'd have a struggle with the cross. Well, in Matthew, and those of you who've been here, we just taught through all four, in Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the King. And in Matthew... He is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I believe that that banner, that lion, points again to the Gospel of Matthew. It's a reference to the fact that, yes, there is going to be the Word of God that's going to come, that's going to illuminate this cross, that while the people that were wandering in the wilderness could not fully understand it, that through the Word of God we totally understand what the, what, what the cross is all about. So in Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the king. He's portrayed as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's the book, they're waiting for that coming king, the king of the Jews. Judah, lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. Now in Mark, Jesus is portrayed as the suffering servant. The banner that carries the ox. What does an ox do? carries burdens. What does an ox do? It's a total servant to its master. It plows the road. And it's interesting that as you go right in order, I just see a correlation here. Again, Pastor Day's opinion, but 
the ox, that, that servant, that beast of burden. And again, to me, a picture of Jesus Christ again. Now in Luke, Jesus is portrayed as the Son of Man, right? Okay? Luke portrays and speaks of the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's 100% God, but Luke really emphasizes the fact that he's 100% man. Well, when you go in order, guess what's next? Which banner? The banner with a picture of what? A man. Now, I don't think that's coincidence. Okay? And we see here that that man, or that picture of a man, I believe points yet to one more of the Gospels. Pointing to the fact that, yes, Jesus Christ indeed was fully man. The emphasis, again, on his humanity. And then lastly, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. It talks about his deity, about him being high and lifted up. Again, could be a stretch from your perspective, and if it is, forgive me, but the eagle. Do you know that an eagle soars higher than any other animal that exists? Do you know that an eagle is the only animal that has a coating on its eyes that it can fly, it can fly straight into the sun and it won't be blinded by it? There's no other animal on the planet that can do that. And here's this eagle, right? Again, I think a picture pointing again to John as a picture of the one who is high and lifted up. The one is higher than anything else that's ever been created in the history of all mankind. I see a correlation between the, the lion and the tribe of Judah pointing to the gospel of Matthew, to the ox or the beast of burden pointing to the servant, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ in Mark, to the, the son of man and the banner of a man and the tribe of Reuben, the emphasis on his humanity, and then finally the eagle that soars higher than any other, being a picture of Christ being lifted up and that deity and the son of God. Now again, remember that all four of those animals are in the angelic host in heaven. All four of them. When we get to heaven... I, I know it, we look at it now, it, well, that's funky, but when we get to heaven, it's going to be awesome, I promise, okay? Can I fully explain it? No. Would I, want to fully exp- would I want to go to a heaven I could fully explain? No. Would I want to serve a God I could fully explain? No. Now, here's something scary. I didn't mean to do this. I just happened to have these with me. Let me show you one of the Hindu gods. These are Hindu gods. Now, you can buy them small size, medium, or large. Okay? You want a medium god, large god, small god. Okay? This is Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth. Now, if you walk around India for very long, you're going to find out she's not doing a very good job. Okay? But this is the goddess that they serve during Diwali, the high Hindu holiday, which I was there for. It's the Hindu version of Christmas in a sense. They do fireworks and they celebrate the fact that they're in bondage to dead idols. All right? They got, these, they got these places all over the place, and they're bonded to these dead idols. And I'm glad that I can't buy my God for 50 cents off a stand, amen? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you can't take your God home and put him on a shelf in front of your house? I'm glad that my God created all things, and he's greater than all things, and he's greater than I can understand, and I'm finite man, and I'll never fully understand infinite God, but I understand enough to know that he loves me, that he died for me, that he suffered on a cross for me, that he gave me his word in such a clear way. If I find the divine order of his word, I'm going to see more and more clearly and more and more deeply who our God is. You know what I'm learning about God's word? The more I study it, the less I realize I know. The more time I study God's Word, the more I realize just how small I've scratched the surface of God's Word. 
I know that I could spend, if the Lord tarried and He somehow gave me the ability to live 10,000 years, I could study this book for the next 10,000 years, and I still would not have scratched the surface on God's Word. It's awesome. Any other book you read, you spend five years studying it, they think you had a learning disability, right? But God's Word is so deep, and it's so living, and so powerful, and so divinely orchestrated, as we see in the chapter tonight. Man, the Bible just is totally awesome. Last, go back to the last three verses of the chapter, and then we'll be done. Verse 32. So we see they break camp last, and every time they would set up camp, they would set it up in this fashion, that, that when God would look down from heaven, He would see His people camped out in the cross. Verse 32. And it says, These are the ones who were numbered of the children of Israel by their fathers' houses. All were numbered according to their armies and forces, 603,550. I find it interesting that out of between 2.5 and 3 million people, only 603,550 were counted. You know what I thought about this? They only counted those who were equipped for battle. They didn't count the pew potatoes. They didn't count the big fat sheep. They didn't count those who could not go into battle. You know what, guys? We are living in a spiritual war. Amen? The battle belongs to the Lord. God did not save us so we could sit alongside and watch the parade go by. God saved us that He might use us for His glory. God saved us and gave us gifts that we might impact the world around us. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. And I find it interesting that the only ones they counted were the ones who could go into battle. You know what, Lord? May my life count. May I be one of the ones that you would count. I count him. I count her. Why? Because they're equipped to go into battle. How do we equip ourselves? How do we get more faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's Word. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in God's Word. We spend time in fellowship like you are right now. We seek His face above all others. That our lives might count for His kingdom. I want my life to count. How about you? Amen? I want to be one of those ones that the Lord says, I count Him. And these are the ones that counted. They were the ones that were ready to go out to battle. Verse 33. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. They were not to go out into battle, because they were dedicated to serve in the temple alone. Verse 34. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards. So they broke, each, they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their family's houses. Now I find this interesting. One last thing, and then we'll close. When we get to Numbers 22, 23, and 24, we're going to see the story of Balaam. And God showed me something while I was studying this. Balaam disobeys God, and he goes out, and he does keep seeking the Lord. And remember, he's riding on the donkey and the, and the angel's in front of him holding a flaming sword. And he just keeps kicking the donkey to keep going. You guys remember that story? And finally, the donkey turns around and goes, Dude, are you stupid? Do you see the angel right here? Are you paying attention? He's going to smoke us if we keep going, man. Finally, and the donkey starts talking. I think that'd be enough, right? But Balaam goes up. And he's not able, he looks down, he gets this incredible vantage point, and he sees them camping in the wilderness, and he looks down, and what does he see as he looks at, at them camping in the wilderness? He sees the cross. And as he sees the cross, he is unable to curse, he's only able to bless them. I like that. 
He looks down and he sees the cross, and because of the cross, it's impossible to curse them. He can only bless them. And because of the cross, we cannot be cursed. We can only be blessed because the price has been paid. The blood's been shed. We're going to heaven, and the Lord loves us. We're adopted into his family. We're heaven bound. Praise the Lord. Amen? And I love the fact that Balaam looked down and saw the cross and could only bless and could not curse. Man, that's awesome to me. So in closing, we see that as they're going through the wilderness, as they're headed to that, the, the land of promise, that they encamp in tents, temporary dwelling places, just like you and me. That in the center of them, as, they, as they're headed to that land of promise, is a tabernacle, the place where the Holy Spirit dwelt, just like the Holy Spirit dwells with inside of us. We see that they're encamped in the cross, and may that be where we hold on to. May we not hold on to our good works, may we not hold on to our efforts, but may we be holding on to the cross of Christ and realize that's the only way we can be saved. We see that the cherubim are there, the angelic host. We see the picture, Pastor Dave's opinion, a type of the four Gospels that would illuminate the Scripture. So what's the application for us finally? We are dwelling in temporary tents. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are surrounded by the angelic host. We are encamped in the cross, God's grace, the blood of Christ. We are headed to the land of promise. May we make our lives count for Him. Amen? He paid the price. May we make our lives count for Him. He's worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be praised. Let me tell you one more thing. I'll tell you one thing that blew me away about India. There were many things. But one of the things that absolutely blew me away about India was the way they worshipped. 260 people sounded like 5,000 to me. They were lifting the roof off for Jesus. Now, they weren't rolling around in the aisles having, you know, out of control, focus on me. They were just worshiping the Lord because they love Him so much. And I believe one of the greatest signs of where we're at with the Lord is how we worship Him. If we truly understand how great He is and how desperate we are for Him, shouldn't it cause us to worship Him with all of our hearts? Amen? Can I just be your pastor for a second and share with you from my heart? I'm gonna, okay? I love you guys. You know that I love you. I would die for any one of you. But let me tell you something that concerns me. When I was in India, I first thought about, Lord, I want to bring these 260 guys back and let them loose on Santa Cruz, man. These guys are so in love with the Lord. But then the Lord put on my heart, we don't need to bring India back to Santa Cruz. We need to bring the Holy Spirit to Santa Cruz the way that it is in India. The way that it is in those people. Bring that joy that they have for God to my church, Lord. And they got up and they were praying for you guys. I shared with this, this with you on Sunday. They got up and prayed for Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. And these guys were praying from the depths of their hearts. But when they worshipped, the roof was coming off of that place. And sometimes, again, you know I love you, okay? But sometimes I come in here and we're worshipping like it isn't all that big a deal. There's five people singing. Oh, well, yeah, praise the Lord. What is that all about? If the Niners score a touchdown, it doesn't happen often, but when they do, you know, we jump up and down. And I'm not saying we're, we should be doing backflips and the Holy Spirit rolling on the ground, but shouldn't we just love Him more than we love anything else? And isn't He worthy to be worshipped, you guys? Amen? We go to men's retreats. We have 200 guys in there, and the windows are shaking. You guys were there last year. Is that not true? Remember the worship at the men's retreat? Can't we bring that here on Sunday and Wednesday? 
Can we worship Him with that same passion, that same heart? He's worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and to be lifted up. There's no way you're going to be able to see this. But these guys are worshiping. I wish I had a sound bite. Because they have a, a drum and they are just worshiping. I'm 300 yards away having tea with the, with the principal and I just hear this rattle over there. I'm like, man, how many students you have? 260. Man, it sounds like 2,600. And I go over there and they just, they're not worried about anybody else. They're focused on the master. You know what? Man, God, do that here in Santa Cruz. Amen? Start that with me. Start with me, Lord. Start that revival in my heart. And then may it spread to our people. And may it spread to this county that so desperately needs Jesus Christ. We don't need to bring these guys back to India. We just need to have the same heart that they do there. They live in eight by eight rooms. Families of four. Eight by eight rooms with a concrete floor. One bed. They all sleep in. And they have joy. Now, I'm not saying you have to live on a concrete floor to serve God, but we should love Him so much that a concrete floor would be enough. Amen? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. You don't realize that He's all you need until He's all you have. May we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Is He worthy to be worshipped? Amen? May we have that heart. I'm praying. I just want to see God do great things here. And may He start with those of us in this room. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you, Lord, and you are so worthy to be worshipped and praised and lifted up. And Father God, I pray that, Lord, you would paint eternity on our eyes. That, Father God, we would look at you and see you and see the world through eternal eyes with an eternal perspective. That, Father God, we would see your divine order and your divine plan. That your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, Lord, would be pouring out of us on the world around us. And Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that you, you called us and that you saved us, that you chose us, that you adopted us. But Father God, I pray that our lives would count, that we would be equipped for battle, Lord, that we would go out in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we would impact this world around us. Lord, I lift up Santa Cruz County to you. I pray, Father God, for revival here. I pray for revival in our neighborhoods. I pray for revival in our families. I pray for revival in our homes. I pray, Lord, for revival in our workplaces. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to be salt and light, Father God. May we die, may we decrease, that you, Lord, may be magnified through us. Lord, I thank you and I praise you, Lord. I love you so very much. I want to shout it from the mountaintop, Lord. May we have that heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Amen.